Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. As the practice of mindfulness permeates mainstream Western culture, more and more people are engaging in a traditional form of Buddhist meditation. However, many of these people have little interest in the religious aspects of Buddhism, and the practice occurs within secular contexts such as hospitals, schools, and the workplace. Clinical trials show that practicing Buddhist meditation has benefits regardless of whether or not one subscribes to the religion, raising fundamental questions about the nature of Buddhism itself. Today's book, Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World, is a collected volume of Stephen Batchelor's writings which explore the complex implications of Buddhism's secularization. He explores questions such as, is it possible to recover from the Buddhist teachings, a vision of human flourishing that is secular rather than religious, without compromising the integrity of the tradition? And, Is there an ethical framework that can underpin and contextualize these practices in a rapidly changing world? Ranging widely from reincarnation, religious belief, and agnosticism to the role of the arts in Buddhist practice, Batchelor offers a detailed picture of contemporary Buddhism and its attempt to find a voice in the modern world. Stephen Batchelor is a teacher and scholar of Buddhism. He trained as a monk for 10 years in traditional Buddhist communities and now presents a secular approach to Buddhist practice, having also written the best-selling book, Buddhism Without Beliefs. He joins me today from somewhere near Bordeaux, France, to talk about his new book. Hello, my name's Carrie Lynn Evans, and you're listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Buddhist teacher and writer Stephen Batchelor, who's agreed to talk with us about his new book, Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Carrie Lynn. It's a pleasure to be here. First, maybe start by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to work in your field. Well, that's a long story, and... Um... I'm not going to go into any great detail, but basically when I was 18 years old, um, I had a great longing to get out of England where I had uh, grown up and gone to school. And in to cut a long story short, I made a, an overland trip to India. Um, it took me about six months. And when I arrived in India, I immediately found myself in the community around the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. And began then to start studying Buddhism. I didn't have a very strong interest in Buddhism before I left England, but I knew that I was looking for something, a philosophy, a way of life, meditation, something like that. And this seemed to meet all of those those, uh, criteria. So after a couple of years, I ordained as a Buddhist monk. I would have been about 20 years old, uh, the purpose being to have a lifestyle that would allow me to focus my attention uh, completely on what I was uh, uh, absorbing myself in at that time. And for the next few years, 10 years in fact, I trained as a Buddhist monk uh, in India, uh, later in Switzerland in a Tibetan monastery there, and then for four years in a Zen monastery in South Korea. 
Um, at that point, um, I disrobed. I came back to England and I began my work as a writer and a teacher, uh, particularly trying to um, find a language in which to communicate some of these uh, philosophical ideas, these uh, Buddhist uh, meditative practices, um, in a way that would actually speak to the conditions of our world, our, our secular world. And more and more, I found myself distancing myself from uh, the religion of Buddhism and trying to get down to its roots, which I feel increasingly are not essentially religious at all, but are really a kind of philosophical ethic, perhaps a bit like Stoicism or Epicureanism. Um, and that's how my work has, re has really developed over the last uh, 30 or so years since I've been uh, writing and teaching. And Secular Buddhism, in a sense, is a book that brings together a lot of those ideas um, in a, into a single volume. Excellent. So, yeah. Uh, tell us how you came to write this book in particular. Well, I, actually, I published, um, I published two books in the last few years with uh, Yale University Press. The first one in 2015 is called After Buddhism. And that is a somewhat uh, scholarly book uh, that tries to put together all of my thinking as it had developed over my 30 or 40 years uh, as a practicing Buddhist. And once I'd finished that book, um, I kind of realized I'd brought much of my writing to a, to a point of closure. There was nothing much more I could add to what I had just completed in that book. And it was at that point that... Um, one of my editors suggested that perhaps I might put together a collection of essays and interviews and other things I had written um, in different uh, sources, different magazines, uh, some academic journals, and to create, as it were, a kind of a prequel to the book After Buddhism, to show how the ideas that I expressed in After Buddhism have been developing and growing and digressing in many ways um, through lots of smaller pieces of writing uh, that were published all over the place. And so it seemed like a very good idea to collect all this material into a single volume. And that, in fact, is uh, what secular Buddhism is. It's a collection of writings written over a period of about 20 years. I think the earliest piece was written about 93, the later pieces in about 2015, 2016. And it allowed me a wonderful opportunity, really, to bring together materials that I'd never thought of before as belonging together. But putting them together as an anthology enabled me to see much more clearly how my own thinking had evolved and developed. It also, because of the nature of such a, an anthology, it allowed um, me to focus in quite some detail onto topics that I've never really covered elsewhere in my writing. So I feel that Secular Buddhism, this book we're going to be talking about, is very much um, not only an introduction, but also a kind of a intellectual biography almost of, of, of how I came to understand Buddhism in the way that I currently do. 
Excellent. Yeah, I think that's a very good description. Okay. So uh, in the introduction, you talk about the cultural adaptation of Buddhism from country to country and throughout history, as well as your experience studying the Indian Buddhist monk poet Shantideva and the life of Gautama, or sorry, Gautama. So can you tell us about that? Uh, um, well, the introduction, uh, which I call In Search of a Voice, is, of course, the one piece of writing that is not anthologized. It's my attempt to um, articulate uh, what this whole uh, volume of essays is trying to do. And it struck me that what it was really about, particularly from the point of view of a writer, um, is that it is about finding a voice. Um, I've also experimented in writing fiction and other forms of uh, uh, and other forms of literature. Um, and I'm aware of how important it is in one's growth and development as a writer to find a voice. In other words, to no longer simply mimic or copy the voices of authority that you admire in teachers and other authors, but to, coming, to come to discover actually where your voice uh, has its own distinctive tone, its own distinctive character, vocabulary, interests. And it struck me that this is really what this book is, um, dis is disclosing. It's disclosing my own search for a voice, my own search in a, in, in, in a sense of, of becoming a writer. And the voice, of course, uh, I understand not just as me speaking to a blank wall, but a voice that I developed through entering into a dialogue with other uh, figures, historical figures, contemporary figures, who allowed me the context in which to begin to refine my own understanding and to establish more and more clearly the particular perspective I had and the particular way in which I articulated that perspective. And I single out a number of, 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 of figures uh, to illustrate this, one of whom is Shantideva. Shantideva is an 8th century um, Indian uh, Buddhist monk who is most famous today for a text he wrote called A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. Now, when I was a young Tibetan Buddhist monk uh, living in India, I started to translate this uh, book. Um, this was a project that was initiated by the Dalai Lama, and it took me a full five years, in fact, to translate the 900 verses in Tibetan um, of this monk poet, uh, Shantideva. And although this, of course, was a very good exercise in developing my understanding of the Tibetan language, my understanding of the philosophy of Buddhism, I also realized that it was an opportunity to enter into a very intimate dialogue with this mysterious person called Shantideva. In other words, this person uh, who had composed this text, the person who stood behind these words, we have virtually no biographical information about who Shantideva was, but, and this is quite uncharacteristic of a lot of classical Buddhist literature, Shantideva comes across as a very human figure. He's not a kind of a cipher who's just a vehicle 
for doctrines. He's someone who clearly is undergoing his own struggle with some of these ideas and some of these practices, and he's quite open to sharing this in a very kind of uh, confessional way, which I found enormously attractive. I found that Shantideva in many ways uh, brought the theory of Buddhism very much to life. And I think in many ways he has thereby served as an inspirational figure uh, in my own work. Another character that I um, mention in this process of finding my own voice is St. Augustine, uh, which might sound a bit odd for someone writing uh, about Buddhism. But St. Augustine too, the, the church father who lived in about the fourth century AD, is someone likewise who's Life has been a great inspiration to me, uh, particularly, of course, as we find it in his confessions. So again, I, I acknowledge that my own voice is formed not just by my engagement with Buddhist writers, but also my engagement with voices from my own Western tradition, in this case, uh, a very important figure in the Christian church. Uh, so again, just to, to flag, really, that uh, St. Augustine, um, even though I don't believe or understand even much of what he says theologically, he nonetheless lived a life of, to me, great passion and integrity. And I think that has clearly influenced uh, my own uh, thinking and my own relationship to my to this tradition in which I'm involved. Uh, Gautama, the Buddha himself, is someone who I've spent many years um, thinking about. Um, reading texts that are attributed to this character and once again slowly um, beginning to get a sense, to get a feel for who this person is who is uttering these words or these words that are at least attributed to him. Um, another figure I mentioned is Ludwig Feuerbach, uh, again another Christian, in this case uh, uh, a 19th century philosopher, uh, someone who greatly influenced Marx in, in the Marxist critique of religion. Uh, and Feuerbach likewise enabled me to find uh, a form of speech um, that did not uh, buy into the uh, rather exaggerated and ultimate claims that religions often make. But Feuerbach enabled me to see how religions are very much uh, social, historical, uh, conditioned uh, phenomena uh, that very often are caught up in, the, in, 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 in uh, issues of power. Uh, uh, Feuerbach understands how claims to religious truths are also almost in unavoidably claims to authority and power. And for Feuerbach, the more that that power becomes concentrated in uh, a body of professionals, priests or monks or whatever, the more it becomes distanced from the lives of ordinary men and women who are trying their best to put these teachings into practice. So Feuerbach, uh, very influential in my thinking because it uh, served to somehow allow me and my readers, hopefully, to, uh, to, to, to take ownership of the values, uh, the compassion, the wisdom, the love that very often in religious set settings get projected onto uh, the figures in authority. So that's kind of how I begin this book, uh, by um, by looking deeply into the origins of my own quest um, as a practitioner of the Dharma, as a writer, 
and finally, I hope, uh, arriving at a voice that I think has its own distinctive quality. Okay, good. So the first chapter is comprised of two essays. Um, the first talks about the life and writings of uh, Nyangavira, uh, an English-born Buddhist monk who lived and wrote in the post-World War II era. So maybe tell us about him and what you feel are the important things we can learn from him. <laughs> well, Nyangavira is a terribly interesting character. He's very little known in the Buddhist world. Um, he's a somewhat marginal character, but, um, and in fact, he spent m much of his time uh, in the last 15 or so years of his life, basically living as a hermit in the jungles of Sri Lanka. Um, Nyangavira was born Harold uh, Musson uh, from a somewhat upper-class English family. He uh, was he, he he became part of the uh, army during the Second World War. And it was during that period that uh, he came across a book in Italian uh, written by a man called uh, Giulio Sevola uh, called La Dottrina del Risveglio, The Doctrine of Awakening. And this book actually was what, in a sense, turned his mind to uh, the philosophy and the practice of Buddhism. And after he had left the army uh, and had returned to civilian life when the war was over, uh, he became increasingly interested uh, in Buddhism. He translated this Italian text into English. And in 1952, I think it was, he then left uh, from, uh, from England to uh, Sri Lanka or Ceylon, as it was then. And uh, he ordained as a Buddhist monk. He spent the rest of his his life uh, as a Buddhist monk, um, and as I mentioned already, basically living as a hermit. But during this period, he wrote um, an enormous number of letters, uh, both to his fellow monk friends, but often to people at, in England, people he uh, was friendly with, um, his doctor, other people. And this provided, again, um, a very inspirational example in my own attempt to come to terms with Buddhism. What I find that Nyangavira did was that he brought a very critical intellect to particularly early Buddhist teachings. He analyzed them in terms um, of modern Western philosophy, particularly existentialism, phenomenology, uh, and other such uh, forms of thinking. And made a great attempt to somehow tease apart uh, in these early Buddhist texts what constituted the real kind of timeless message that the Buddha was teaching in contrast to materials that had either been drawn simply from the Buddha's time, his culture, or on the other hand, from Buddhist doctrines and dogmas that had been layered onto these early uh, teachings and had crystallized into effectively uh, you know, Buddhist uh, uh, beliefs and so forth and so on. So uh, Nyanavira served as a very good example for me of someone who could uh, passionately commit themselves to these core values and yet do so with a very critical and inquiring mind. Um, uh, tragically, he committed suicide in 1965 um, with the understanding that this was an entirely legitimate uh, 
response to his ill health that he was suffering at that time. But he does, I'm aware, cast somewhat of a shadow over his life. And I think that's one of the reasons why he's treated with some caution by many contemporary Buddhists who feel embarrassed or, or, or shocked or uneasy, at least, with the fact that he took his own life. And um, I, again, don't really um, find that uh, particularly endearing. Um, but nonetheless, his life is one, I think, that was lived with extraordinary integrity, uh, with a brilliant analytical mind and also a great gift uh, for literary writing. So in all of those respects, uh, he too has been a figure who has been uh, very influential in what I've subsequently come to do. Okay, and the second essay, the second part of the first chapter there, is an interview you had with Peter Maddock, who actually had an opportunity to speak with uh, Nangavira in Ceylon. So tell us about that. Well, this is an interesting story, because Peter Maddock, um, uh, I mean, it took me a long time to even find out who Peter Maddock was. But one of the things that is curious in Nyang Avira's uh, letters is that he talks about a meeting uh, he had with two Englishmen who came to see him, I think in about, it actually was in 1965, shortly before he died. And um, one of these people was uh, Robin Moore, uh, the nephew of the well-known writer Somerset Moore. And Robin Moore was a kind of journalist and uh, spent his winter months often traveling in warmer climes. And this winter he was in Sri Lanka, or Ceylon as it was then. And um, he heard about Nyangavira, this Englishman, this English aristocrat hiding away in the jungle, and that struck him as a very good uh, story. So he set out to find Nyangavira, he tracked him down, he went to the hermitage, and he spent a, a day at least, if not a couple of days, uh, talking to Nyan Vera, and that actually became the material for a book that uh, Maum wrote uh, some years later called, I think, In Search of Nirvana. But what is curious is when you read Maum's account of these meetings, Maum is always alone, whereas when Nyan Vera talks of these meetings, he speaks of a second man. Nyan Vera doesn't actually say who this second man was. He doesn't give a name. He just talks him as his young friend. In fact, uh, this was Robin Maugham's uh, uh, secretary and lover. Um, and it took me an awful long time to track this fellow down. Um, I went to Robin Maugham's um, uh, publisher. I spoke to people who knew Robin Maugham. And eventually I came up with the name Peter Maddock. But there the, cold, the trail went cold. Um, eventually... Purely by chance, I stumbled across an interview with a man called Peter Maddock in the Sunday Telegraph. And um, uh, there looked to be enough commonalities between my Peter Maddock and the Peter Maddock in the interview, um, who had actually just written a play and it was being performed in London. Um, and so I wrote to the interviewer, who I, by chance I happened to know, and he put me in touch with Peter Maddock, and it did in fact turn out to be the, the man in question. So I phoned him up and we got together and I made that interview with him. And I think it sheds a very interesting light on Nyangavira because this is how Nyangavira was seen by 
a young man, 18 years old at the time, um, who was sort of vaguely interested in Buddhism, but not particularly. But it casts um, uh, uh, a lot of, uh, I think, understanding um, as to what Nyang Avira would have been like to someone who had no vested interest in him being important or even good for a news story, but just uh, another man, another human being. Uh, so Peter's uh, interview uh, that appears in my own book, I think uh, somehow fleshes out the whole sense we can have of who this Nyang Avira terror was. So we have the first chapter, which is my an essay I wrote about Nyang Avira more in the 1990s sometime, and then that's complemented with this uh, uh, reflection by uh, Peter Maddock. That's a fascinating piece of detective work. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. It was also it was great fun doing that sort of thing. Fantastic. Okay, so in your next chapter, which you title Buddhism 2.0, um, you explain what you mean by secular Buddhism and what the place of a non-religious Buddhist practice might look like in the modern world, which is kind of what you've been driving at mm -hmm. uh, so far. So please tell us about that. Well, secular Buddhism... Uh, is a is an idea that uh, I slowly arrived at after many years of reflection and study, and it just struck me as possibly the best way to capture my own particular approach to Buddhism. Secular is a word that obviously we're very familiar with, particularly on this kind of uh, podcast. But um, it's useful just to step back and uh, look at what um, we mean by the word secular. On the one hand, secular means nothing to do with religion. I think that's how most people probably would understand it. You have a secular approach to things and you have a religious approach to things. So I'm looking for in, I'm, I'm not looking to Buddhism because I'm looking for another religion. I'm looking for Buddhism because I'm looking for a philosophy, an ethics, a contemplative practice that can help me live more fully in this world. And this world is a secular world. Um, it's a world that's no longer um, governed by the authority of priests and churches and so forth and so on. It's really the kind of world that has emerged, at least in the West, uh, since the European Enlightenment, um, the Industrial Revolution, the political uh, changes that occurred through the 19th and 20th centuries. That's the kind of world most of us now feel to simply be the, the world. We don't have to qualify it by secular. But secular also means, um, uh, it means very much to do with this age. It has to do with our time. Um, so it's not just about it not being religious, but it also emphasizes how the Dharma, which is what Buddhists call Buddhism, the Dharma really is concerned with addressing the issues of our time. Um, a good example of that would be the widespread use today of mindfulness. Um, this is very much a secular move. Uh, mindfulness is being taken out of the monastery. It's being adapted by psychotherapists and others, and then it's being applied to uh, completely ordinary situations in modern life. Um, so secular Buddhism for me is just a way, a term, that somehow encapsulates this movement that is underway in our day um, to strip Buddhism of its religiosity, 
possibly even to discard the word Buddhism itself, which is a direction I'm increasingly uh, moving towards, and to consider Gautama's teaching as effectively a framework uh, for, few, for human flourishing, uh, for living fully, uh, to lead a life in which you are true to your deepest intuitions and values, uh, to provide a philosophical and an ethical framework in which to think those things through more clearly, and at the same time also to constantly question uh, what you believe in and how you live, and thereby to arrive at a practice, a way of life that for many people may not look like Buddhism at all. Uh, it may simply be a kind of a humanist, uh, secular, uh, existential engagement with uh, our life in the world today. Okay. And you write that there's a very important distinction between belief-based systems of thought, such as Christianity, mm -hmm. and practice-based systems, such as that which can be offered by Buddhism. So can you go into more detail about that distinction? Yeah, I, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't put it quite so bluntly. Um, you'll find in all traditions, Christian, Buddhist, Muslim, you'll find people who um, identify <clears throat> as Christians or Buddhists, but have relatively little interest in um, adhering to their beliefs. Um, the beliefs for them might actually be secondary to, let's say, the ethics or the meditation or whatever it might be. Um, but nonetheless, um, so in other words, I wouldn't say Christianity or Buddhism per se are inevitably belief-based systems. Uh, but nonetheless, that is certainly how they tend to get represented and how probably the people who are, as it were, the authorities within those traditions would tend to uh, present them as well. I think it's helpful, and this is what I'm doing really with my secular Buddhism, is to think of the Dharma not as a belief, as a truth based or uh, ethic and no, I'm sorry no, uh, what is the word not to think of the Dharma as based essentially on beliefs but to think of the Dharma as based essentially on practices and the key shift that I make um, in the essay that I include in this book as well as elsewhere is that Buddhism tends to be founded on what are called the four noble truths and these Four Noble Truths are presented as basically um, metaphysical truth claims. In other words, that life is suffering, the origin of suffering is craving, uh, the end of suffering is the end of craving, and the way to the end of craving is the Noble Eightfold Path. In other words, the Four Noble Truths are basically dogmas. Uh, they are doctrines, and you need to, to believe in them, at least roughly speaking, if you are in good faith to declare yourself as a Buddhist. Um, now, what I'm interested in doing is actually discarding this uh, Four Noble Truth model altogether and basing my own understanding of the Dharma on what I call the four tasks, the four great tasks, which are also to be found at the very sources of Buddhist tradition, but curiously are not uh, ideas that have ever really been developed in the history of Buddhism. It's quite curious, really, that the Buddha 
concludes his first uh, discourse by claiming his enlightenment to be that of having uh, recognized, performed, and accomplished these tasks. In other words, understanding suffering, letting go of craving, seeing the stopping of craving, and cultivating a way of life. They're the four tasks. Is that we find that right at the very beginning of the tradition, and yet curiously it disappears, and we only get fragmentary um, references to these ideas in the uh, canonical literature. Um, so what I've tried to do is to go back to that original idea and to develop it. It seems to me a much more of useful way of thinking about the foundations of the Buddhist teaching rather than going and starting with a, a set of doctrines, a set of beliefs, the Four Noble Truths. So in that sense, my understanding of the Dharma is one that is essentially pragmatic. In other words, it's not concerned with establishing what is true. It's concerned with um, living in such a way that actually produces a life-affirming effect. In other words, you judge this practice in terms of, of, of the good it does to you, um, your health, your well-being, your capacity to live more fully, rather than justifying it because it is somehow corresponding to a set of doctrines or beliefs. And um, that's the core, really, of what uh, my whole approach to Buddhism is now about. Okay, yeah, that is more clear. So you're you're shifting from competing ideas of truth to just looking at uh, practice as being the most important element. Uh, exactly. Well, not just as practice, but practice as a, a practice that can have a therapeutic and uh, you know uh, that can actually generate an outcome. Right. Results oriented. It's results oriented. It's 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 uh, what we would call a consequentialist ethic. Okay. Uh, I'm interested in, in the consequences of these practices. I'm not interested in whether the, the beliefs on which they're based are true or false. I think that's irrelevant. Which really allows one to move on past um, claims about truth that are impossible ultimately to falsify or verify. I exactly. Okay. That sums it up very well, yes. Excellent. <laughs> Okay, so in chapter three, which you title Thinking Out Loud, um, you've got eight shorter essays here, and there's two broader themes I'd like to talk with you about. The first is from your essay entitled The Other Enlightenment Project, in which you uh -huh. compare the development of the Western Enlightenment philosophy uh, for example, regarding questions about the nature of the self, to parallel inquiries that had developed historically in Asian philosophy. And then you put those in the context of the postmodern point of view on meta-narrative, which is as a corner of scholarship that I enjoy uh -huh. very much. So there's a lot to unpack there. Can you uh -huh. tell us about this? Well, um, the title of the essay, The Other Enlightenment Project, is a kind of... Um, it's a bit tongue-in-cheek. I'm thinking of, I think it's Habermas who talks about the Enlightenment Project. And um, this, is a, a this is what Habermas calls the project of culture and civilization that has been driven by the European Enlightenment. And curiously, we use the same word in Buddhism, uh, Enlightenment, but to refer to something very different indeed. And that's why I call it the other Enlightenment project. Because 
one of the problems I have with um, uh, Western philosophy is that it tends to think that philosophy ends at Athens, begins and ends in Athens. The idea that uh, non-European peoples could have had equally legitimate philosophical uh, inquiries and produced philosophical texts doesn't really seem to uh, be acceptable. Uh, this is a real problem, I find. So I wanted to flag the word the other Enlightenment project. To me, what the Buddha was doing, uh, albeit in the 5th century BC a long time ago, was actually to um, seek to envisage a society or a civilization that was founded upon his vision of, uh, of life. And that vision, I'm arguing, is effectively the recognition, the performance and the accomplishment of these four tasks. Uh, and that is, uh, for me, not a project that is concerned with transcendence in the sense of realizing some sort of absolute truth or attaining some spiritual or religious liberation or salvation. But it has to do very much with the uh, project of uh, giving rise to another form of culture that is infused and embodies uh, certain values and ideas. And to me, that's what the Buddha was trying to do. Uh, he was trying to establish the template for another kind uh, of, of, of civilization. Now, the language that then subsequently develops in Buddhism or sometimes becomes rather dogmatic, uh, and the Dharma becomes locked into certain core beliefs that have to be accepted uncritically. But it also uh, leads to uh, uh, certain uh, tendencies in philosophy that we might now call skeptical. Um, in other words, uh, a philosophy that's very reluctant to sort of pin down anything as ultimately true or real or metaphysically somehow beyond time and space or whatever. So what I'm doing in this essay really is to point out the parallels between a project that has been going on in Asia for an awful long time, but has been ignored by our own Western philosophical tradition, and to see how that bears many of the hallmarks, not only of the, the Western Enlightenment project, but also in terms of how uh, Buddhists, many, many years before the post-structuralists and all of these people, were also highly alert to the, um, to the slippery nature of language itself. Um, you have Madhyamaka philosophy in Buddhism of about the second or third century AD, which speaks of how, uh, how the reality is, is, is in a sense just nominal, just words, just text, which is very similar to ideas you might then subsequently find in Derrida or elsewhere. So what I'm doing in this essay is really to sort of just uh, explore some of the parallels, some of the uh, resonances that these two approaches seem to bear one with the other. It also, of course, allows me to liberate myself from Buddhism by adopting the sort of meta-narrative that is so characteristic of postmodern thought as well. Okay. The second strand of thought I want to focus on here is the further development of your ideas on the nature of a secular Buddhism. Uh, you write about the role of the concepts of rebirth and karma, the limits of agnosticism, as well as your own personal view of a more radical goal of a secular Buddhism, which you articulate as a striving to, and I'll quote you here, 
quote, return to the roots of the Buddhist tradition and rethink Buddhism from the ground up, end quote. (laughs) So, and you've kind of alluded to that already as well. So, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, tell us more about these themes. Okay, well, of course, one of the, one of the key ideas in Buddhism is that there, after we die, we are reborn. In some, either as a human or in some other realm. And what drives this process of rebirth uh, are, is our karma. In other words, the, the actions that we've committed in this or previous lives that serves as the kind of engine that drives consciousness into a heaven or a hell or as a human or as an animal. And these are ideas that are absolutely uh, embedded, not only in Buddhism, but in Hinduism, in Jainism. It's totally part and parcel of uh, classical Indian cosmology. Now, I began to have problems with these ideas quite early on when I was still a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And I just found them uh, not only difficult to understand, uh, but also I couldn't really see why they were so central. Um, Over time, I began to realize that karma and rebirth were not ideas that were distinctive in Gautama's teaching, but simply were included in the uh, included in his teaching simply because they were features that were broadly accepted by the societies of his time. Be a little bit like today we would um, draw upon the knowledge of science and evolution and astrophysics and we would talk about uh, you know genetics and DNA um, and we simply take that for granted even though we don't have a clue what they are. I mean I can say those things, uh, but I don't know. I have no, no idea at all what DNA is, but it's part of the world in which we live and it forms our communal uh, culture and language. And that's uh, how we, we uh, understand things. And I think karma and rebirth at the Buddhist time had a very similar kind of role. In other words, they're not essential. They're simply reflecting a cosmology that I think we can politely leave behind. Now, Um, In 1997, I published a book called Buddhism Without Beliefs, uh, which you alluded to is my best known book, really. And um, what I suggest in there is that we can have a completely um, serious and committed practice of uh, Buddhism or the Dharma without having to believe in karma and rebirth. We could be agnostic about those things. We don't have to deny them. We don't have to affirm them. We can simply say, I don't know. That this is really not relevant. I, it struck me that this was a fairly uh, un... un uh, what's the word? It struck me that this was a not a particularly uh, objectionable thing to say, but it uh, gave rise to an enormous controversy in the Buddhist community. Um, Many Buddhists, as a result, really wanted to have nothing further to do with me. Um, I was rather surprised by this. Um, It showed me that although Buddhism often presents itself as being reasonable and concerned with uh, science and uh, it's got this wonderful psychology and so forth. In fact, for many Buddhists, uh, they are invested in doctrines like those of karma and rebirth, much in the same way as uh, traditional Christians or, or Muslims would be invested in the idea of God or heaven and hell or whatever. So agnosticism became very much the the leitmotif of my book, 
Buddhism without beliefs. But I also later, and um, this is what this essay in this book concerns, is that agnosticism too is a tricky idea. Because in many senses, agnosticism is just a fancy way of saying we don't know. Uh, our gnosis is not knowing. And um, in that respect, agnosticism isn't actually saying a great deal. You could even argue that all believers are agnostics. In other words, very few, if you believe in God, for example, or if you believe in rebirth, you are acknowledging that you don't actually know that there is God or rebirth, but you have a belief in it. So in some senses, you are agnostic. You just happen to believe that this is the case, even though you do not know it for yourself. So agnosticism, too, I think, um, can be helpful, but it, too, I think, is problematic. Um, and so the essay in this uh, collection uh, reflects uh, on where agnosticism can also be a limitation for us. Uh, it, particularly, I think, if you take an agnostic stance as your basic attitude to life as a whole, then I think it can lead one into a kind of moral, um, uh, a moral, uh, it can, if you take agnosticism as your basic stance to life as a whole, it can lead you into a kind of a, a moral passivity. In other words, well, I don't really know. I don't know whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that, uh, uh, that let's say, some uh, America has gone and invaded Iraq, for example. Um, an agnostic position is also a position in which you refuse to take any commitment and that, to me, is a problem. I feel a life cannot be lived purely on the basis of an agnostic approach. We do need, in order to be moral agents, um, commitments to certain values, uh, commitments to things that really matter for us in our life, commitments to things that we're willing to fight for and die for. That, to me, is part and parcel of what it means to be human. And we may take, make those commitments not on the basis of knowledge, but on the basis of intuition, on the basis of basically how we feel deep down in our bones. And agnosticism, I think, could potentially uh, blunt or dull that capacity of our uh, human uh, life. So, yes, all of these uh, little essays effectively highlight a particular element um, of what I have struggled with over the years. And hopefully these little pieces might shed some light on, on, on how they contribute to this broader project, which uh, is going back to the roots of the Buddhist tradition and rethinking Buddhism from the ground up. In fact, to be quite honest, at this point, we really have to perhaps question the word Buddhism too, because I don't think the Buddha taught Buddhism any more than Jesus taught Christianity. Buddhism and Christianity developed in the centuries that followed. What the Buddha taught was the Dharma. What Jesus taught was the good news, the Gospels. And that's what I want to get back to. I want to get back to what Gautama was saying before it mutated into Buddhism before it became another Indian religion. And I think it's at that point we begin to engage with these teachings in a way that um, is able more directly to address the conditions of our life in the world in the 21st century. 
Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up um, Christianity in the same context or with the uh-huh. same kind of approach, um, because the next uh, the next section I wanted to talk about, uh, Chapter 4 is a collection of conversations. Um, the first one in which uh, you interview a uh, Anglican priest and professor at the University of Cambridge named Don Cupid. And the mm-hmm. second two are a couple of interviews where others interview you. But let's start with Mr. Cupid or, or Professor Cupid here. Um, <laughs> he's been described as a radical theologian. Um, his views do seem uh, pretty radical to me. And he's noted for his ideas about something termed the non-realist philosophy of religion. You call uh-huh. him the eclectic cleric. So uh-huh. tell us uh-huh. about his perspective and why it is of particular value to you. Well, I'm glad we've got to Don Cupid. Don Cupid is has become a friend. Um He's someone whose writings I've been following for many years. And um, what he has done in Christianity is not entirely dissimilar to what I'm trying to do with Buddhism. In fact, we both acknowledge this in our respective work, except I regard him as my inspiration. I certainly don't think he regards me as his inspiration. Um, he's in his 80s now. He's, uh, he's an older man. And... Um, He published a book, I think it was in about 1984, I think, called Taking Leave of God, which is a bit like Buddhism without beliefs. And Taking Leave of God um, was, um, you know, for a a Christian theologian to write a book called Taking Leave of God um, turned out not to be a terribly good career move. And... uh, as you might imagine, and <laughs> yeah. it got it got him into an enormous amount of trouble, uh, much in the same way that I got into trouble for writing Buddhism without beliefs. Um, he effectively his career stalled at that point. Um, he was in line, I think, probably to become a leading theologian, possibly a bishop in the church, um, but. Um, None, none, none of that actually then uh, happened. Most Christians that know of his work regard him as just too radical. But frankly, I find him extraordinarily refreshing. Um, I find that he has is a man of tremendous courage, uh, of, 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 of an extraordinarily uh, brilliant mind, um, who has decided to be totally honest. And um, the price of his honesty has been considerable in terms of his own life, but I followed him um, as someone who I can really uh, admire as a person of conviction and as a person who is not going to uh, you know, mute what he says for concerns about his career or about how other people think of him and so forth. But effectively, for Don Cupid, God... Um, is simply um, a term that denotes what we value most in our lives. And in some of his more recent writings, he's actually uh, started to think of God as just the old way in which we now talk about life. In other words, God has become life. And um, as an example of that, he says, you know, you go to a funeral today and people will say in praise of someone, she lived a very good life. 50 years ago, people would have said uh, she lived um, uh, uh, she lived um, a life devoted to God or something like that. And 
So what Don is doing is he's basically saying we don't really need this God language anymore. We have a perfectly good um, uh, neutral uh, everyday speech that can allow us to speak of the deepest concerns that we have uh, in ways that no longer need to be somehow constrained by uh, theology or religious language at all. Um, and he notes, uh, you know, in his writings, how basically people, most people in the world today, at least in the modern world, uh, don't spend any time thinking about religion at all. It's become something that uh, has little, if any, bearing on their actual life. But Don is a person who um, is deeply committed to the core values of his Christian tradition. He's learned and acknowledges his debt to other traditions, the Jewish tradition in particular, um, certain uh, uh, secular philosophical traditions, um, Heidegger and whatnot. And also he's one of the few theologians who actually acknowledges a debt to Buddhism. And this is where, in a sense, I first came across him, was uh, the fact that uh, he was talking about Buddhism. He was writing books on theology and he was uh, drawing uh, quotes and uh, ideas from the Buddhist tradition. Uh, that's really what made me sit, sit up and pay closer attention to what he was doing. And it's through that link that I then got to know him more personally and um, continue to you know, stay in contact with him uh, today. Um, so this conversation I held with him was done for a Buddhist magazine, a tricycle magazine in New York. And uh, that will give the reader of my book uh, a much another angle in which my thinking is uh, influenced by uh, the Christian tradition as well, or the radical Christian tradition. So next you include interviews that you did with Jeff Hardin and Chris Talbot. And with Hardin, you talk about the practice of studying for Buddhism. And with Talbot, you talk about your work studying the historical man who was the Buddha and your analysis of Buddhism's primary texts. So tell us about those conversations. Okay, well, the first conversation has to do with the, um, uh, the, the importance of actually studying and analyzing textual materials as an integral part of a Buddhist practice. Now, the reason that this is an issue in the modern uh, Buddhist community is that uh, many people practice Buddhism uh, simply in order to meditate. In other words, Buddhist practice is about meditation. It's about mindfulness. It's about concentration. It's about becoming more still, more focused, and thereby somehow entering into another awareness or consciousness of the world. And there is a strong tendency within this uh, community to uh, more or less disregard study. Uh, they say, look, what we're interested in here is experience. Uh, we don't uh, really need to look at all of these difficult and rather obscure texts. Um, you just have to trust your own experience. Um, it's very, very common to hear that. So I'm actually arguing against that. I'm arguing that actually, if you, st if you say, for example, my practice is really just about experience, there's absolutely no need to study, there's no need to have theories, you have just announced a theory. Uh, the theory that there's no need to study, that you just have to meditate and you don't need theory. That is a theory. In other words, as long as we are thinking animals and 
as humans, we always will be. We cannot just uh, conveniently put one part of our life to one side, in other words, rationality, thinking, investigation, philosophy, and just focus on being mindful. To me, that's uh, inadequate uh, as a way to uh, flourish fully as a person. For me, the practice of the Dharma is about human flourishing. It's about bringing all dimensions of our life into a much more conscious and focused alignment one with the other. And part of that is getting a much clearer uh, intellectual understanding of what this practice is about. Let's say mindfulness. I mean, how does that work? What, why do you do it? What's the, um, what are the origins of this practice? What is the psychology that uh, informs it? And so forth and so on. And uh, this discussion with Chris Talbot was basically um, my attempt to um, uh, highlight the importance of critical thinking, the importance of rationality, and uh, the risks we run as human beings if we somehow feel that we could just dispense with those things. So I'm trying to encourage Buddhist meditators, basically, uh, to, pay, to take these ideas and concepts much more seriously. Uh, rather than simply dismissing them as just ideas, as one will often hear. And this very much is ties in with the second interview with uh, Jeff Hardin. Which one was it? Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, I got them the wrong way around. Uh, in any case, with the second interview. This is, a, uh, again, um, an interview which is largely about my book, After Buddhism. And since After Buddhism is following two primary tracks. One is to try to find criteria that will establish an, a text as being earlier rather than later. In other words, this is my quest to try to find out what lies at the origin of Gautama's te te teaching. And secondly, to have a much clearer sense of who Gautama was as a human person rather than this rather divinized and idealized uh, character we call the Buddha. So to me, these two go hand in hand. Fortunately, a great deal of modern scholarship that is occurring in Buddhist studies in universities is paying attention to the getting a better understanding of the historical, political, economic, social conditions under which Gautama lived. Uh, there's much greater understanding now of the exact dates of the Buddha. Um, he lives much closer to our time than was originally thought. He's a contemporary of Socrates, so he's living in the 5th century BC. And we now know uh, from archaeological studies and, and, and textual analysis uh, much more about the kind of world in which he lived. But to me, to understand Gautama's teaching, we have to understand the audience of his time. To understand the audience, we have to understand what kind of society they lived in, what kind of aspirations they would have shared, what kind of conflicts they would have struggled with. Otherwise, we end up with a teaching that is completely ahistorical and is very often simply just rather broad generalities. So in my secular approach to Buddhism, uh, history is crucial uh, to get a much clearer sense, in other words, of the Buddha's own seculum, his own age, his own time. And it's that that enables us to differentiate between what Gautama says that is effectively just addressing the human condition, 
And I have to admit, it's quite striking when you read some of these early Buddhist texts that they seem to be speaking so directly to you, the reader, who's, you know, living two and a half thousand years later than when these texts were originally uh, composed. So what I'm interested in doing is, 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 is getting back to these uh, ideas and these values and these practices that seem to somehow transcend uh, the historical period of the Buddha's own lifetime. But in order to do that, you have to understand what that historical period was like. Um, same true with uh, critical analysis of early uh, Buddhist texts. Uh, much of this insight comes from contemporary scholarship, not from Buddhist tradition, but again, the sort of analysis that um, we now are able to do, the comparative analysis of different source texts, philological analysis of uh, the writings and so forth, all of which serve to give us a much sharper picture of what were the ideas that were uh, foundational and distinctive to Gautama, as opposed to what texts and ideas were probably elaborated and developed uh, at later periods for often very different reasons in very different historical settings. Um, so both of these interviews, uh, again, once more flesh out uh, the broad project that I'm involved in, uh, in my secular approach to Buddhism. That's very interesting. Um, it's it's cool to see uh, modern archaeological methods and those kinds of historical, cultural, um, contextual studies being applied to Buddhism, um, as as we see them get applied to other um, very old historical traditions. Mm -hmm. So that's great. Okay. Um, so chapter five takes a turn into some other practice in your life, which is, um, which is your art, which I thought this was really fascinating because you also work as an artist and you say that this, and I'll quote you again here, this provides an ongoing nonverbal counterpoint to your work as a writer, which I think is a very interesting perspective. You mm -hmm. see the creation of art as having a lot in common with Buddhism because, and I'll quote you again, um, great art begins with an unflinching acceptance of anguish as the primary truth of human experience. Uh, so in terms of your own creative efforts, you do photography, which you say you find is very similar to meditation, and you also create mosaics out of found materials, which I found really interesting. So <laughs> tell us more about this. Um, uh, yeah, this is, um, a part of my life that I haven't really made that public um, until this book, actually. I, I mean, these essays have been published elsewhere, but um, they've never been brought together um, in a single volume. So I was very happy to have the opportunity here to um, explore this uh, dimension of my, my own work. Um, it's true that my artwork um, serves as a nonverbal counterpoint uh, to what I write. And what I mean by that is whenever I'm writing a book, um, I also have going on in my studio um, a, a, usually a work of collage. My, my books are more connected really to my work as a collage. 
And um, collage is, again, a process of composition. It's about uh, taking materials that I find all over the place. I only pick up litter on the streets and out of people's uh, trash cans and stuff. And uh, I then reorganize those things that are being discarded and rejected and try to transform them into what someone might be happy to hang on their living room wall. Um, and my work as a writer, I think of in a very similar way. It's also composition, except I'm using words. I'm not using pieces of uh, found material. Um, but nonetheless, the act of writing and the act of uh, making collage are both similar in that they're both forms of composition, of putting things together and figuring out what works, what goes with what, if you like. A musician would have the same thing, lots of notes of music, but why do you put that note before that note and then another note after that? Why do I put this word next to this word and then the following word? Why do I pick a piece of red uh, paper and put it next to a piece of yellow foil? The same basic uh, challenge faces the writer the photographer, the artist, uh, the collagist, because we're trying to create something. We're trying to compose something. We're trying to synthesize out of lots of almost an infinite variety of diverse raw materials and crystallize them into a work of art. I think of my, my, my books very much as uh, literary projects. Um, I do take a lot of, um, I take a lot of care in my writing. I don't see myself just as a scholarly writer who is reporting on my um, on my understanding and my research and so on. I actually see my books as, uh, as literary works. I aspire to that at least. Um, in fact, this brings us to my next book, um, which is hinted at at the very end of this chapter five in Secular Buddhism. And that is a book um, in which I sought to integrate my written work with my work in collage. And I've now just completed a book. It's called The Art of Solitude, in which the book is constructed according to the same formal principles I use to organize my collage work. Uh, I can't explain that. Uh, it, would, it, it would sound too complicated and probably not very coherent. But in terms of my own uh, process as an artist, uh, this, I feel, was almost the inevitable step. I mentioned earlier that I felt with my book After Buddhism, I'd somehow reached a, a closure. I, couldn't, I haven't really got much more to say in that sense. Secular Buddhism, the one we're talking about now, as it were, brings together lots of uh, materials that have been scattered here and there into a single volume. Now I can leave that kind of writing behind me and embark on uh, uh, a process of, 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 uh, of, of, of composition that unifies collage with writing. Um, I can't really say much more about that than I'm uh, than I've just said. Um, this book will be published in the spring of 2020, um, so it won't be coming out uh, very soon. Um, but that's really, I think, uh, the point at which um, uh, this whole process that we've been 
I've been talking about and we've been discussing has finally led to that. Um, and, uh, you know, I see, you know, I, I feel very grateful really to have been able over the last 40 years to dedicate myself to something that I feel a great passion and fascination for um, in such a way that I've been able to earn a livelihood from uh, teaching and writing and so forth. And I feel that um, that uh, somehow these different dimensions of my life have thereby been enabled to come together into a single current. Uh, where I'm going next, um, I'm not quite sure, but this is where I am now. Well, Stephen, I've taken up a lot of your time. I want to thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show. I really enjoyed your book, and I was glad to have a chance to chat with you about it in person. So thank you. Thank you very much, Carrie Lynn. It's, it's been a great discussion, and I thank you very much for the opportunity to, to share uh, this uh, book with your um, audience. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. I want to thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Stephen Batchelor about his book, Secular Buddhism, Imagining the Dharma in an Uncertain World. If you enjoyed this podcast, please write us a positive review on iTunes, post about us on social media, or tell a friend. The New Books Network is a not-for-profit organization, so all the buzz you can help us generate goes a long way to supporting this work. Do you have a book you'd like covered on one of our shows? Contact us through our website, newbooksnetwork.com. I'm also looking for a co-host for this show. My goal is always to get out two interviews per month, but at certain times of the year this is more challenging, so with a co-host we'd be able to be more faithful to our publication schedule. If you're interested, you can find me on Twitter at Carrie Linland, that's at C-A-R-R-I-E-L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D, or tell me about your thoughts on Bachelor's approach to Buddhism. Have you ever tried this style of meditation? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. Goodbye, until my next conversation about New Books and Secularism.